Welcome back to our study of the Gospel of Luke. And we are taking a little different look at the Gospel of Luke. We want to look at it from the point of view. I mean, not that we're changing anything the Gospel of Luke says. We're just looking at it through a different prism. And that is stories that are made to pattern our lives after. So let me say a prayer for us and we'll jump in. This is one of the iconic Christian stories, foundational Christian stories. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the blessings you've given to us. And we know that, and you know the trials in our lives, the heartache, uh, sometimes difficulties in relationship. You know that there are those that are near to us who need healing and grief amongst us. Lord, I pray for everyone in the sound of my voice and those here that you would be near us in our time of difficulty, that you would strengthen us. That Lord, we might turn our hearts and our minds to you and rely completely on you. As Peter says that we would just cast our cares and anxieties on you because you love us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here's the number to text your questions to. If you have any questions during uh, the class, feel free to text them in and we'd like to answer your questions. As I said, we are looking at stories because I believe, uh, and I'm not alone in this, but I think that we tend to make sense of our world through stories. If you look at this historically, you see people throughout all time confronting difficulties in life or confronting things they don't understand in life. And so we have stories that make sense of it. Stories all the way back from the Babylonian creation stories to try to make sense of how we got here to every culture does this. Those stories, sometimes they're true, in which case they work when the heat's on, and sometimes they're not correct, in which case you'll see holes in the story. You'll see the stories stop working at times. Well, of course, the truest stories there can be are those that God tells us, and that's what we are studying. So just to recap, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8, and Last time we talked about Luke 7, so let me tell you where we've been. Luke chapter 7, Jesus was in Capernaum where he healed the servant of the Roman centurion. He made his way down to a town called Nain where he, he saw a widow whose only son was being carried on a funeral procession and he raised the child from the dead, gave it back to his mother. And then somewhere in that area, he had a meal with Simon the Pharisee. And that was our study last time. Well, after that, as chapter 8 opens, it says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another. So he is in Galilee, and he is traveling around the area. And he's probably back by the Sea of Galilee by the time our story opens. He was going from town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. If you've ever wondered what was Jesus preaching, well, you know from the beginning of his ministry, he was preaching repent, and repent sounds like a religious word, but it wasn't in those days. Repent means literally to change your mind, but it came to mean change your life direction, change your mind and your attitude and your outlook and the way you live your life. So you might uh, repent and decide to go on a diet. I mean, that, again, it sounds really religious, but it's not really a religious term. It just simply means I'm going to change my direction in life. And that's what he's saying. Change your direction in life. Why? Because something momentous is happening. The kingdom of God is invading this fallen world to redeem it. God has come to reconcile you to him. And that's what he's preaching, the good news about the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, the 12 closest disciples. Jesus had a lot of disciples, but he had chosen these 12 to invest in. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, called Magdalene because she's from the town of Magdal, uh, Migdal, uh, so Magdala or Migdal in Hebrew from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. 
And so if you ever, this is totally sidelined, we'll get into the story in a second, but if you've ever wondered what did it look like as Jesus was moving around, he would have various groups, sizes, groups following him. He always had the 12 with him, but here are a group of women disciples, women followers of Jesus who were with them as part of the group and using their money to buy food and, and, and supporting the ministry, if you will. There were sometimes people that would leave and follow Jesus for a while, then they'd go back to their jobs, etc. So he had a lot of disciples, and that's what we are, by the way. We are disciples, which means learners or followers of the rabbi, Jesus. And so that's how he's traveling around. And so at one point, there was a large crowd gathering, and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, and he told this parable. And I want to start with this word, parable. And I want to tell you what that word means. A parable is a story, but it's called a parable because it's not just a once upon a time this happened kind of a story. A parable is a particular kind of story. And the word literally means to lay something down beside something else. That's how it got its name. A parable is a story that you lay down beside real life and draw some conclusions, if you will. And Jesus taught, not exclusively, but a lot in parables. He taught a lot of propositional truths. Like every parable that he said, you could distill it down and he could have just said, okay, Point one is this, point two is this, point three is this, keep up, write that down. Point three is this and point four is that. But the way he did it was to tell a story, lay it down beside our lives and say, do you understand what I'm saying to you? And that's what these parables are, they're stories. This story, it's called the parable of the sower, but it's not about the sower, it's actually about the soil. And so it's a parable of the different kinds of soil, if you will. This parable is in all three synoptic gospels. So there are four, God I don't wanna bore you, but I've, nobody was born knowing this. I grew up heathen, I didn't know there were even four gospels till I was much, much older uh, than most people. So the synoptic gospels, there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, see things about the same way and they're somewhat historical and they're organized similarly. And so the word synoptic means they're alike. John is written later and so the Gospel of John, he has likely seen the other Gospels and he said, well, I don't wanna redo what you did. I wanna do something a little different. I'm gonna tell you about Jesus, but I don't need to worry about the chronology and he doesn't. And, and so the Gospel of John's a little different. But all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have this story. It's a foundational story about the kingdom of God, and it's not just for the time of Jesus, it's still true today. So let me tell you the story. Jesus is going to interpret the story, connect it to real life. He's gonna lay the story down, then he's gonna connect it to real life, and then there are just a number of questions that I think will be interesting to dive into. So first he says, a sower, NI, this must be NIV, yeah. Uh, NIV says a farmer, but it's a, a sower, somebody out sowing seeds. By the way, on your handout, I put a picture that illustrates this from like 1200 AD. That is really old illustration. So you get a sower sowing seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some of it fell along the path, and it was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. So this is like the walking path through the middle of the field and it's just really hard ground. And some birds ate up the seed. Some fell on rocky soil. The way Israel is, it is rocky in Galilee. Galilee's got so many rocks, it isn't funny. But it also has limestone in places right underneath the topsoil. It's just not very deep. You just can't grow much there because there's not much soil. There's rock underneath. So it fell on that soil said some fell on the rock and when it came up, when it sprouted, the plants withered because they didn't have any moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with the, the seed and choked the plants out. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. 
When he said this, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now I wanna point out to you, this is all the crowd heard. So if this is all you heard was this story, you would probably be wondering, what is this about? I mean, he's teaching us something, but so far all he's teaching us is when you scatter seed, this is kind of what happens to it. But it must be important because when Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, I mean, that sounds odd to us, but in those days, that was like saying, pay very close attention to this, this will be on the final exam. You know, you ever had an instructor that say, write that down, that's gonna be on the final. That's what he's saying. And so the crowd is a little puzzled, and they were puzzled by many of the parables. But that's the story, and he's laying it down next to real life. Well, his disciples asked him, what in the world does that parable mean? I mean, it's a story and it's supposed to apply to my life, but I really don't understand it. And Jesus said the knowledge of the mystery, this word is actually mystery, of the mystery of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables so that, now he's quoting Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet prophesied to Israel 700 years earlier, saying, even though they see, they don't notice. Even though they hear, they don't understand. Now, at first, that sounds really harsh, like I'm telling them in parables because I want them to be confused. But let me explain it this way, because this is what actually happened. Jesus had a lot of sayings that I call time delay sayings or time release sayings. Have you ever taken uh, medications that you take it and you take the pill and it says, this is time release, it, it slowly releases over 24 hours. That, by the way, is really interesting technology. My pharmacist son explained this to me one time. I said, so how does that work? Turns out there are three or four different methods of it and it's really fascinating. But back to the story. Jesus had teaching that was time delayed. It was time release and so the the disciples are about to learn it from Jesus. Everybody else figured it out after the resurrection and then the disciples go preaching and they tell the story and they explain it. They wrote it down so that you and I would understand it. So this is meant to be understood, but it's not meant to be understood right then. And so Jesus did a lot of what I call time delay sayings. And so he explains it to his disciples. He said, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. What is the word of God? Well, the word of God is the good news that God has revealed, that mystery. A mystery in ancient times, there were a lot of mystery religions. That, that word is a loaded word because in their days, Mystery religions, you had to be a certain kind of person to be initiated. Think of it like some of our social organizations, uh, you know, like Shriners, or think of it like maybe like a country club, you know, somewhere you have to make an application and you have to be voted on to be in. Well, then you could learn the mysteries, the secrets of the religion, and it was only open to a few people. But the way the New Testament uses it, it says there is a mystery here. There is something here that nobody understands, and that is how is God going to reconcile the world to himself? We can't do it. We're lost. We're hopeless. I mean, uh, what's going to happen to us? That's a mystery. It's unknown. But in the New Testament, the mystery is simply something you would not know the answer unless God told you. And here's the beauty. He told everybody. Christianity is an incredibly inclusive religion. You don't hear that today, but if you think about it, Christianity, God revealed himself in the New Testament through the disciples. In You and I read those words, that revelation from God. We could not know any of those things without God revealing it to us. It was a mystery, it was a secret. Secret's a bad word because it makes it sound like he was never gonna tell. It's a mystery, something we couldn't figure out on our own. And so, 
The seed is the word of God, and the word of God is this story of what God is going to do in the person of Jesus. It's gonna be God becomes flesh, God dies bearing our sins, is raised from the dead to overcome death forever, and that all who place their trust in Christ can be reconciled to God. That's the mystery. And that answers the question, how in the world are we ever gonna be reconciled to God? Well, you now know. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the word of God. Now the seed along the path are people, so this is now talking about people and equating them to the soil. These are people who hear the good news and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they do not believe, they may not believe and be saved. Man, that's a loaded question. And that is that you cannot be rescued, which is another way of translating the word saved. You can't be reconciled to God. You can't be saved. Those are all synonyms. You can't be saved without placing your trust in Christ. And so he said this, this, that seed is representative of people who do not take this into their heart. Satan takes this away from them. Those on the rock, meaning on the really thin soil over this limestone, are the ones who receive the word with joy. I mean, sprouts up when they hear it, but they have no roots. I mean, you, you really can't go down very far there. And so he's saying, you've seen that happen? Well, those are people who are joyful. They're, they're thrilled and they believe and they're on fire, but they have no roots. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, that word also translates uh, trials, difficulties, the hardships of life. It can be persecution for your faith, but it can be any kind of trial or difficulty in your life. When they, uh, in the time of trials or testings, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those, in other words, that soil, are people who hear but as they go on their way of life, they are choked by the, remember the thorns choke them out, those plants. They're choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those people with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering or enduring, produce a crop of fruit. So, Let's talk about what this means and then we'll jump into our questions. But Jesus is basically saying this story, remember this is in all three of the synoptic gospels. This is a foundational story. It's saying that the word of God affects people differently based on who they are, on the soil. There are a variety of responses to God's word. So forget the seeds for a minute and think somebody standing up here, Billy Graham is, is here to tell you that God loves you that you have an incurable sin problem, but because of what Jesus Christ did, if you place your trust in him, God will make you whole into eternity, will heal you forever. You can be with God forever. So he, he preaches the gospel, the good news. He tells you the good news about that. What this is saying is there are going to be a variety of responses to this. And some of the obstacles are spiritual obstacles Satan does not want people to believe that because guess who owns those people today? Satan. Satan has a mortgage on our soul. And the idea is that Satan says to God, I'll bet you these people will serve me. And he was right. Why do we serve him? Because we serve ourselves. We follow after sin, pride, self-centeredness. And, and Satan says, these people belong to me because you're not reconciled to God. I am the king of hell and I own you. And that is the way the Bible portrays this. You have a spiritual uh, sources. You have trials or difficulties, whether that's persecution because of what you believe, so you give it up or you water it down or whatever, you don't have much roots, or you just hit the trials of life and you go grabbing for some other God or solution or whatever it may be. And then finally, those that, that grow but they are so concerned with worry, riches, and pleasures, and it keeps you from actually maturing in the faith and, quote, bearing fruit. And we'll talk about what, what is fruit 
later. Two key things to take out of this. One is that the gospel, the good news, is transmitted through hearing. I'm gonna include with that reading. But bottom line is the, the gospel is not a movie. You know, the gospel is not just a feeling, a la Buddhism, for example. That Buddhists maintain that you have all the answers within you. And so you just need to look in there and pull out all the answers. You were born with a life instruction manual and you lost it, but it's in there somewhere, right? Probably in your junk drawer. That's not how the gospel is done. It doesn't say, look inside yourself, you'll find your salvation. That's kind of a spiritualist, new agey kind of a way of thinking about it. It's, it's kind of a quasi-Buddhism brought into 21st century affluent America. But bottom line, the scripture says, there's no way you can save yourself. You don't even know how it's possible. It was a mystery until it was revealed to you. Hence, we call the Bible the revelation, the revealing of God telling us how this is gonna be accomplished. And secondly, and this is the key, if the gospel, the gospel calls for a total reorientation of our lives, you can't hear the word of God and say, man, that's awesome. Can I get a get to heaven card? I'm gonna put it in my wallet and I will see you when I die and on about my regular life. There's nothing in the New Testament that says, oh, Jesus is a nice little add-on. Oh, by the way, here's a fish for your car. Put that on there, you're good. No, it's a complete reorientation of your life. Paul says you died, your old self died and you walk in newness of life. Jesus said, every day deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. The gospel calls for repentance, a completely directional change in life. Here's the issue about that. That's why you see, I mean, if the gospel didn't, call, if it was just a free giveaway, everybody would have one and nobody would have any heartburn with it, right? It's sort of like the Hindu religion has a lot of gods. And there are times when you'll see people who are Hindus encounter Christianity and they go, oh, absolutely, Jesus is awesome. I will add him into the other gods that I worship. Well, is that really New Testament teaching? No, it calls for leaving our idols and totally reorienting our life. That's why there are different reactions. If it's just an add-on, doesn't matter if you've got a hard heart, doesn't matter if you've got shallow roots, we just take Jesus and go on about your life. It calls for a total reorienting of your life. Consequently, you'll see different reactions to it. So, but that's, that's the parable, that's the story, that's the explanation of the story, and Jesus said, the story's about a guy sowing seed, and I'm gonna explain to you how it applies to real life. I'm telling you, there are these different kinds of people, or really different kinds of reaction to the gospel. Now, what does that story mean? Well, I thought we'd look at some questions. First one is, is our response, and you, you guys may have questions too, so feel free to text them in, but I had some questions which you need to answer. So, is our response to Jesus predetermined? Fair question, and that is that are some people just rocky? Some people are shallow? Some people are worried and anxious and all choked out with the cares of life, and some people are gonna go to heaven. I mean, is our response to Jesus predetermined? I wanna introduce the idea of predictive versus prescriptive. This parable reads as being predictive. There are places in the New Testament that are prescriptive meaning this is what's going to happen. You shall do this, you shall not do that. This is sin and this is righteous. There are very prescriptive, in other words, telling you the way it is. There are also things that are predictive and that is Jesus saying, not everyone is going to respond to the gospel wholeheartedly, mature in it and bear fruit. 
there are going to be some people that do this and some people that do that. For example, let's give you another passage that's another predictive passage. Jesus is saying to people, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many, many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. What's he saying there? Relatively small group of people go to heaven. Um, that's just to put it in colloquial language, which I don't like to do, it's fairly imprecise, but that's what he's saying, is a one road leads to life and one road leads to destruction. Paul says that, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And what is Jesus saying? A lot of people are gonna take the easy path. Not so many people, I mean, it's called a narrow gate for a reason, you know, is gonna take the narrow gate. Well, that's predictive. It's not saying that passage can't be understood to be saying, God has decided that only a handful of you are going to heaven. You may believe that, you may wanna argue that based on some other scripture, but you won't get that out of this scripture. All this scripture says is, let me tell you the way it's gonna be. I'm gonna to predict to you, and I'm gonna to predict to you accurately because I know the future is relatively few people will go to heaven. In other words, it's a narrow gate. He's not saying, I decided, I'm only gonna let a few people in. He's just saying, this is the way it's gonna work out. Well, that's what this parable is. Now, you may argue from other passages, whatever point of view, it just, it, for this purpose of this, it makes no difference to me what your point of view is on uh, election in, in, as it relates to this. That's not really what this is about, in my view. What this parable seems to be saying is it's predicting that this is what the response will be you will see various kinds of responses. So I do not believe that our response to the word of God is already predetermined according to this passage. In other words, it's, we bring something to the table and we will react differently to it. So no, I don't think this parable is saying, hey, if you're rocky soil, you're rocky soil. Just live your life as best you can because you're toast, right? I don't think that's what this parable is saying. Next, let's go through the four kinds of people who hear the word. The first is the rocky, uh, is the beaten down path. And I equate that to a hard heart. What is a hard heart? And here's a passage. This is Romans chapter one. This is Paul talking about humanity of all time. Humans in history, humans in his time, humans in our time. Although they knew God, because he talks about how, just look around, you know that there's something greater than us. This is not by chance, contra Darwinists. This did not happen by random chance. I don't care how many monkeys are typing on a typewriter, you are not gonna get the plays of Shakespeare out of it, okay? It just didn't gonna happen. So this isn't by chance. And although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him, but, and this is really interesting, their thinking became futile. And when I say that, I'm gonna say they're thinking their story to make sense of the world was not true. Does that make sense to you when I say that? Remember I said, we make stories to make sense of the world. Instead of recognizing, hey, let me tell you the story that makes sense here. Somebody made this. There is a God who made this play. Instead, their thinking became useless. And so they, their story, the way their worldview, the way they wanna make sense of the world was useless, it was futile. And their foolish hearts were darkened, meaning you are chasing a lie and sooner or later, you are gonna run smack into the wall of reality. That's what happens when you live a, we call it a delusion. So basically, if you come out and you say, I can actually fly and I'm gonna go up to the top of the tallest building here and I'm gonna jump off, would we say, wow, great life story. I wonder if that works. Hey, go ahead, we're gonna watch. No, we lock you up for your own good and we say you are delusional. In other words, your story, fair enough, it's your story about the meaning of reality, but your story is gonna really hurt about the 34th floor, you know, as you fall, right? So that's what he's saying here. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. 
idols, whether that's George Washington on a dollar bill or whether that's pride or ego or whatever, power, whatever idols we look for. Remember when I said the gospel demands a radical reorientation of our life, a hard heart, here's one way to think about it, is one that is not open to reorienting my life. I'll do it my way. I'll be in charge. What is Satan, if you think, look back in the scriptures, this is what's attributed the sin of Satan. The fall of Satan is a, an angel who is fallen, meaning he was cast out of heaven. And what did he say? I will be God. I will lift myself up and be over everything. And so that's a worldview, a life story that isn't open to being reoriented toward the truth of God's sovereignty. That's a hard heart. And so when you see people, they're so, their hearts are hardened because they're so committed, so committed to their view of the world. Their and when I say a view of the world, a story, what I mean is it orders your values, it orders your self-worth. Have you ever met somebody, this is a great example, have you ever met somebody whose self-image or their self-worth was so invested in something that they did, a job or uh, what they were known for or who they married or where they lived or what car they drove. I mean, you, you see people whose self-image is so invested in something, they can't let go of it. And it's usually sad, isn't it? It's usually tragic. That's a hard heart. That's what he's talking about here is I'm not open to hearing anything else. I'm radically committed I'm clutching with a death grip whatever it is that I'm trying to find security in or that I'm trying to find importance or I'm trying to find meaning in the world. This is an epidemic in our society. Is I know you look at people and you think you're an enemy. No, they're lost children holding on to something that will never satisfy them. And consequently, they can be really, really mean. But these are people who have hard hearts because they're so invested in uh, what, they're, what they're looking at. So that's the seed on the path. What's a shallow faith? Well, that's really what you have when you have the seed that goes into the soil and it sprouts up quickly. Happened to my ryegrass. Oh, it sprouted and it died. Could have something to do with the guy watering it or not. But my point is, it sprouted up and it looked really good, but it didn't get any nourishment and it didn't have any roots. And as soon as the sun came out, it's dead. And so this is someone who has a shallow faith. There's only this much topsoil. And so, man, I'm on fire for Christ, but I never develop any roots. And so when difficulties come or disappointment comes or... Uh, temptations come or persecution comes, I don't really, I'm not getting any nourishment from anywhere. I don't have any roots. And I call this a shallow faith. And here's an example. Jesus uh, in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard this passage, but this is what he's talking about. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, meaning lives your life according to them, is like a wise man built his house on the rock. The rain came down, uh, streams rose, winds blew, beat against it, but it didn't fall because it was on a firm foundation. I mean, I'm mixing metaphors here. I realize that. You're going to have to pardon me. But bottom line, this is, is, has some depth in God's word. Why? Because he heard it and he did it. He reoriented his life. He began to completely commit himself to Christ and he began to practice it. That's what that means. The other person though, he said is, here's the words, doesn't put them into practice. For example, basically I hear your words, I like your words, Jesus you're awesome, I think I'm gonna go to church some, you know, 2.2 times a month, and bottom line, but I've got no roots. And that's like building your house on the sand. And as soon as the difficulties come, rain came, streams rose, whatever, house falls down. By the way, side note, Jesus talks about this idea, this radical reorientation of your life, the idea of hearing, 
putting it into practice and enduring or persevering, Jesus talks about this way more than you realize. When you read the Gospels now, I want you to listen for this. He talks about this idea a lot because he understands that's the essence of the kingdom of God. It's hearing. It's radically reorienting your life. It's, or we might call that repentance. We might call that turning to follow Jesus. We might call that dying to our old self and living for Jesus. Whatever words you want to put around it, that's what's happening here. And then we persevere in that walk. So he also says at the end of Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, the ones that say, Lord, Lord, say, you're Jesus, you're my master, you're my savior, you're my Lord. He says, not everybody that says that goes to heaven. Has that ever bothered you? That's shallow faith. Why? Because I'm fired up, but I don't last. I have no roots. I can't withstand trial. And so Jesus actually talks about this quite a bit. So that's the second kind of soil, the second kind of reaction to the word is what I call a shallow faith. Third, this is what I call the anxious life. This is the seed that fell amongst the thorns and it grows, but it's just in competition with the thorns. Jesus said it's in competitions with the worries, the riches, and the pleasures of life. And so this is what I call the anxious Christian, the anxious life. It's like I take it in and I'm getting roots as deep as I can. The problem is I got a lot of nourishment, got a lot of energy, got a lot of mind share, got a lot of things going to other things. Like I gotta make a living here. I got 2.3 children and you know, I got, they're all in soccer and two of them need braces. And I gotta, you got the worries and the cares and the pleasures, et cetera, of life. And this is something that John talks about in the first letter of John, 1 John. Do not love the world. This is, sounds really harsh, but this is absolutely blunt and it's absolutely what Jesus is saying. Why should you not love the world? Because it will choke the life out of your faith. It won't make you a non-Christian in that I no longer believe in Jesus. I mean, I guess it could, but that's not what Jesus is saying. He said, these are people who believe, but they get all choked out. There's no fruit. John says it this way, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in this world, the cravings of sinful man, worries, pleasures, riches, you know, the same thing Jesus is talking about, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of your eyes and the boasting about what we've done and what we have does not come from the Father but from the world and the whole world and all of its desires are going to go away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. John's saying the same thing, but he's just saying it in a right between your eyes. And this is interesting because John's, in this letter, he talks about love more than any other letter I think in the Bible. And yet he's right between the eyes said, do not love the world. Why? Jesus said, the cares of this uh, will choke you out. You don't have enough nourishment to grow your life in Christ and to grow your riches and your pleasures and indulge all your anxieties and your worries and your fears. Why does this happen to Christians? We tend to this is my diagnosis, and I don't mean to be harsh. I'm judging myself here too. It's because our faith in Christ is not giving us security. In other words, we are not completely committed. We are hedging our bets on security. Well, if this Jesus thing doesn't work out, at least I've got my 401k. If this Jesus thing doesn't work out, the Jesus thing's gonna work out in eternity, but right now I can't possibly, you know, live in a lower standard of life than what I'm living right now. I don't want things to go wrong. I want everything to go my way. In other words, this desire for security, this fear that leads to a desire for control is competing with our faith. And if you hear me saying that, it sounds harsh, and it is, and it's true, but I'm in this with you. And what I mean by that is to the extent that we have anxiety in our life 
and we are, are tempted by the cares and the luxuries of life. And I'm not saying sell everything and go be a monk or a nun. But what I'm saying is the extent to which we are wrapped up in that, that we have anxiety about that, that's taking nourishment away from our faith. And that's what Jesus is saying. He said, you're not gonna bear very much fruit like that because you can't nourish both of those things. You've got to be all in for Christ. Trying to hedge our bets makes us unproductive in the kingdom. And finally, the seed that falls on the ground that's good ground, and this is the person who hears the word, takes it into their heart, practices it, and Jesus says, and perseveres, meaning they just continue to walk this out. That's what's called a fruitful life. So let me pause there for a second and catch up on a question or two if you have them, and then I'll tell you what a fruitful life is. Yes, question. Um, how does this relate to the idea of sanctification? Yes, let's talk about that. Actually, it'll, it's gonna come in here in a minute, but let me just give you the brief version and I'll try to connect it with one of my other questions. The, the idea of salvation, being saved, and I'm gonna use some other words and these are synonyms, being reconciled to God, becoming a follower of Christ. I'm gonna stay away from the become a Christian word. That's just, that means, that's just so overused, you don't know what it means, but being a follower of Christ means, oh, I'm. Wherever he goes, I'm going. Whatever he says, I'm doing. That's a better word. Being reconciled to God, being saved, all those are the same things. You can look at that as a transaction. It's something that happens. I've been saved. And the Bible speaks about it in that way. And being saved, the Bible also speaks about it as something that continues to be fulfilled in your life. You have the hope of salvation. You have the expectation of salvation. Well, wait a minute, is it a one-time thing or is it a lifetime thing? And the scripture says, yes. It speaks about salvation both of those ways in the same passage sometimes. This isn't a matter of one person got it wrong, one person got it wrong. This is, she's saying, yeah, that's exactly right. We call that the time which you become reconciled to God because you place your trust in Jesus Christ and say, it's no longer I who live, I'm all in and I'm following Christ as justification, becoming righteous. Best word is, I'm reconciled to God. And he said, you place your trust in Christ, I'll deal with all the sins. When I look at you, you're good. Not because you're good, but because Jesus was good. And you know what? I have no issues with you. Sort of like being declared not guilty. It's like, well, I did it. Yeah, I know, but you're not guilty. And so nobody's gonna pull you over. Nobody's gonna arrest you because you're good. Then living your life to become more like Christ, we call, because the Bible calls it, sanctification. Sanctification is just a religious word that means becoming holy, becoming set apart, becoming more like Christ. Remember Romans 8, 28? Those whom he predestined to conform to the image of his son. So the idea is you have a destiny that God is going to fulfill, and that is you're gonna look like Jesus. That living out your life, following Jesus, becoming like Jesus, we call sanctification. Well, where does salvation happen? Yes, it happens there, okay? So, Jesus alludes to this in this fruitful life when he says, if you remember the wording, it says, who hears the word, takes it into his heart, and perseveres, or and endures. And I'm gonna hit this again in a second. You're gonna see that's a big deal to Jesus. So, the idea of sanctification is part of the idea of salvation. It's really easy, and you're gonna hear some people teach this idea that you're saved, when you walk the aisle, when you place your trust in Christ, whatever. I don't have any problem with that wording. But what's not biblical, in my view, is to say, then you might be a good Christian or you might not be a good Christian, but you're still saved. That is not a biblical category. I mean, it just isn't. That's, the Bible doesn't talk about it that way. And you'll see in a minute. So what's a fruitful life? 
this is a great example of fruit because uh, sometimes you tend to think of fruit as, well, I gotta make other Christians. You definitely need to go share your story, share your faith. Uh, that's the great commission. That's not necessarily what fruit is. Look at what Paul thought fruit was in his life. He said, he's talking to the elders in Ephesus and he's about to go to, uh, Jerusalem, he's about to, go to Rome, thinks he's gonna die, and he's right. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Why? What have you done? that has made you innocent, that's made you approved in the eyes of God. I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the entire will of God. I told you the whole story. I didn't hold anything back. I'm not a people pleaser. I love you dearly, but I told you the whole story. That's fruit. You, you were faithful to go tell the story. God never said to you, you need to convert five people. You get here without five, you can't get in. You know, it's, it, that's not the way it works. What do he say? Go be faithful. Go tell your story. That's, that's our part, right? And that's what he's saying. I proclaim the whole counsel of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is a serious charge to elders. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Then, 2 Timothy, he's literally about to uh, have his head cut off. He's gonna be, he's gonna be killed. I am being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. In other words, I've done everything God asked me to do. I've been as faithful as I could be. I left nothing on the field. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the rate, grace. I have kept the faith. I have persevered. I have followed Christ. Not perfectly. Has he sinned? Of course he sinned. And did he pray and confess? Of course. And was he forgiven? Yes, he was. He's a repentant person. But what he said was, I've been faithful. I never wavered. I, I'm Christ's man, I'm Christ's woman, and I, I'm always gonna be Christ's man, Christ's woman. That makes sense? That's what he thinks a fruitful life is. It wasn't, I converted 25 people, or I did this, or oh, guess what? I got persecuted way more than you did. I think I'm in good shape. That's not what he thinks fruit is, and I want you to think of a fruitful life as simply being, I have finished the race, I've continued to be faithful. I've kept the faith. I have been faithful. The deeds that you do, well, I helped the poor. I gave somebody this. Excellent. That is fruit of your faith being poured out. But I just wanted you to see that it's not, I don't want you to get into a deeds mentality, although faith always acts. Faith has to act. But Paul thought the fruit was, I stayed the course and I was faithful to you. And that's something I think is in everybody's grasp. Because you may say, and I understand this completely, is like, well, I'm trying to follow Christ, but I'm nowhere near as good as, as she is. And I'm nowhere near as good a Christian as they are. And I do not volunteer and help people as much as that person. And if you're not careful, you can feel kind of comparatively like, maybe I'm not a good Christian. That's why I want you to understand the Apostle Paul, who probably had it up on all of us, fair enough, and he said, fruit was, I kept the faith. That's something we can all do. And so I want you to be encouraged by that. Yes, question. Okay. If God has known me since the beginning and created me in his image, and he wants no one to be lost, then why would he create me to reject the gospel? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I'm gonna disagree with the premises behind it, but I like the question. And that is, if God wants everyone to be saved, created me in his image, why then would he even allow there to be different kinds of soils? Why would I be able to have a hard heart, which I define to you as, why would I be able to hold on to an idol or something else instead of him? Why isn't the word of God overpowering to me and I have no choice in it? Therein lies the issue. And I'm gonna give you the short version of this, but I would challenge, and, and I don't mean this in a combative way, but I would challenge you to build a world without free will that has love, that has anything other than robots in it. Can I get rid of evil? I can definitely get rid of evil but I also have to get rid of love. I have to get rid of goodness. I have to get rid of kindness. I have to get rid of all those things when I take away choice. And as soon as you give some kind of will, which we are created in God's image, we are created 
to be willful creatures. Now, we can argue how much will and all that. I'm not trying to get theological here. I'm just saying you have a choice. This parable acknowledges that you can respond differently to God's grace. So, that question is actually asking, and it's a good question. I'm not, I'm not com, uh, quibbling with the, the person that asked that. It's a great question. What we're basically saying is in order for God to not let anyone be lost, he has to take away our freedom to respond differently. And that makes us really different creatures. So that's, that's not a sufficient theological answer, but hopefully it, it gives us an idea of something to bite on there. There's a lot more that could be said about that. Good question. So let's get to the really hard, interesting question. Which one of the four of these soils, groups of people, which one of these responses is actually saved? I don't like to answer these questions, and I want to get, you have to get a proviso. There's fine print on this, and I want to bring it right up, and that is, I don't like saying who's going to heaven and who's not because God is the judge. All I can tell you is, this is what the scripture says, but I am not the judge. I am not meeting out. You're going, you're not. On the other hand, I'll tell you what the scripture says. So I don't want you to think that Terry said, those people are going to hell and those people are going to hell. God is the only one who can say that. But he has revealed to us and taught us, how do you need to respond? Does that make sense? So I'm not quibbling with you here. I just want to make sure that any answer I give to this, I want it to be scriptural because God is the only one who can do this. So this is an interesting question. So let's go back to uh, James. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says. Now remember the... Uh, talked about putting it into practice, you know, doing what it says. Because you've got some people that hear it, immediately snatched away. Hear it, love it, don't last. You know, hear it, love it, got too many other things going on in my life, right? So the, the issue in most of these is an issue of putting it into practice and this single-minded devotion. He says, anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says is like a person who looks at his face in a mirror and immediately after looking at himself goes away and forgets what he looks like. I've done that. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, in other words, the one who's got his gaze fixed, as Hebrews says, on the author and perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The one who looks intently into the law that gives freedom continues and continues to do this. You're hearing sanctification come in or you're hearing perseverance language come in and continues to do it. Not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. And then a little later, what good is it, is it my brothers, if a person claims to have faith but doesn't have any deeds? Can that kind of faith save him? What he's saying there is the difference between, I'm gonna use two different English words because there's only one word in Greek, but belief and trust. In English, you understand there are definitely a difference between believing something and trusting in something. And you've heard probably preachers give it analogy, but those words are really different in English. But you translate it mostly belief. This is trust. Is that, that's a better English way of understanding it. If a man claims to trust Christ but doesn't put it into practice, can that kind of belief save you? And the answer is no, it's a rhetorical question. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food and one of you says to him, hey, I'm gonna pray for you, wish you well, keep warm, well-fed, but doesn't do anything about it, what good is it? In the same way, faith, belief, by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. He's, just to put it into our language of this story, he's saying if you don't have any roots, if you don't persevere, then what was the point of your faith? There's no fruit. There's no commitment. There's no follow-through, if you want to put it that way. And I want to tell you what Jesus says about this. If you've never seen these passages, they're pretty, uh, pretty blunt. Uh, this is Jesus speaking in both cases. He's predicting what's going to happen. Brother will deliver brother over to death. That happened in the early church. It will happen again if Revelation is true, and I believe that it is. And the father will deliver his child, and the children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death and you will be hated 
by everyone because of me. That's predicted. It has happened, it is happening, it will happen. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Do you remember the seed that fell on the thin soil? They sprung up and said, I'm all with you, but as soon as you have trouble, whether that's persecution or whatever, it's like I got no roots and I wither and I die. He who endures to the end. Remember the one that, the, there's a reason Jesus is using these words in all these cases, and the same words. The good soil, he says, he hears it, takes it into his heart, and uses the exact same word, and perseveres, or and endures, lives it out, is faithful. All these, I want you to see the whole New Testament is talking the same thing here. Okay, and so he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Later, chapter 24, he says, they will deliver you up, to tribulation, that word can also be translated trials, difficulties, and put you to death, and you will be hated by everybody for my name's sake. Many people will fall away, seed in thin soil, and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise, false teachers, and lead many people astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will go cold. Man's inhumanity to man is a brutal thing but the person who endures to the end will be saved. So what is salvation? So to answer the question, which one of these are gonna be saved, it requires us to understand what does it mean to be saved. And so biblically, Jesus seems to think, not only do you need to place your trust in him, repent, have a radical reorientation, change the direction of your life. I'm using a lot of synonyms here. You guys are probably getting tired of all these synonyms. I just want you to know that when you hear all this languaging, I want you to fit it together. It's talking about the same thing, and that is, I'm following you. Uh, that old guy is dead, make me a new person. And that is what the Holy Spirit is at work doing in you and making you a brand new person. You're not trying to make you a better person. This isn't a home makeover. This isn't a remodel. This is a total completely tear down and build back up. That's the biblical idea. You are a new person. Terry, I don't feel like a new person. You cooperate with the spirit. You are becoming new and new and new and better every day. Not because you are doing it, because the spirit is doing it in you. And so the idea is not only do you turn to Christ, which obviously is essential, and my sins are gone, now I must persevere. James is gonna say, and this is what some people say, is that, well, if you don't persevere, you never really had a commitment. That's not an unreasonable way to look at it. It's not the way I look at it, but it's not an unreasonable way to look at it because if you look at those four reactions, the four soils, the reactions, and you get to the end, who's there with fruit that says, that can say with Paul, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith? Well, the one in the soil that persevered, right, to the end, and it's like, what, where's your fruit? I've been faithful. What does that mean? Oh, well, I did this, I did that. But, you know, doing stuff, that's, that's not, I'm not earning your love. He goes, yeah, that's right. That just showed me that you really did believe and you persevered, right? That's the only person in this story who gets there and says that, who has persevered and produced fruit. Obviously, the one that rejected outright don't even turn to Christ. Second piece of soil turns to Christ turns away at some point. Third one turns to Christ, but is so preoccupied, you don't follow Christ. So am I gonna give you a definitive answer? No, I'm not trying to say those three people are going to hell, this one person is going to heaven. But if you put together everything I've talked about, all the predictive language of Jesus, all I know is this, you wanna be the person that doesn't let the cares of this world choke you out. You wanna be so focused on Jesus that the riches and the worries I've learned to be content whatever my circumstances. That's why we keep studying the Bible together. And this all fits together is we want to be single-mindedly. We want to be the, the fruitful Christians. And again, don't take that to mean I better go out and do stuff. It's like, no, go be faithful. God will bring you stuff to do. Does that make sense? So I would be really concerned about anybody who responds to the gospel in those first three ways. And I know that's saying something because we are, live in America. We literally live in, a, in the world-class thorn patch. I mean, if you think about it, we literally, I mean, there are people in the world who embrace the gospel and you say, gosh, you are poor, poor, poor. 
But man, it's easier for you to be a Christian because you don't have anything. You don't have the worries. You don't have the riches. I mean, everybody has some worries, but you don't have the temptations I have. That's true. And yet we're the prosperous ones. You live in a thorn patch. And so to me, it takes great faith to be a Christian in 21st century America. And so I would urge us to say, we're going to bear fruit, we're going to be faithful. And so I would be concerned, and I'm concerned in my life when I see worry and fear and riches and pleasures pulling me away. You know what that's like. You every now and then step back and take a look at yourself and say, how am I doing here? Hopefully you are in a, a group of people that study the Bible together. You have people that love you and they'll say, you seem to be drifting here a little bit because we all do it. You're right, I'm gonna turn back. That's the story of David. David was the biggest drifter ever, you know. And, you know, at least I haven't killed somebody in drifting, you know. But my point is, what do you do? Always turn back. That's why you have a church. That's what we are here to do for each other, is encourage each other. We are two little wheat, wheat plants in the middle of the thorns and we are encouraging one another to grow strong and be fruitful. That's the story of the sower. That's the story of the soils. And so how is that a pattern for us to live? Well, I think you can kind of see what Jesus is saying. I want you to hear the word. I want you to take it into your heart. And then I want you to keep the faith. I don't want you to let anything pull you off. That's what we believe, that's the story that we think makes sense of this world and all the riches and cares of this world that go with it, okay? All right, next time, a little bit different story, a little unusual story. This one is very famous. The next one, not so famous, but equally powerful. I'll see you guys next time, thank you.